The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, a podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who loves to party with, James Earl Jones, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on the following with Andy and Nico, then Intelligence, Supernatural, Psych, and Revolution, plus our sitcom section including a special 200th episode of How I Met Your Mother, Community, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Justified, Elementary, Enlisted, and Stars Pirate Drama Black Sails, and maybe even a few more things. Nice. It's very exciting. But with that, we're going to go into news with Nico with some very shocking and sad news for the acting industry. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, actor, dies at 46. The actor Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead in his New York apartment on Sunday morning of an apparent drug overdose, according to law enforcement officials. The official said Mr. Hoffman, 46, was found in his West Village apartment around 11.30 a.m. by a friend who had become concerned about not being able to reach Mr. Hoffman. Investigators found a syringe in his arm and an envelope containing what is believed to be heroin. Mr. Hoffman won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the 2005 film Capote, in which he portrayed the writer Truman Capote. He had undergone treatment for drug addiction in the past and spoke in interviews about falling off the wagon last year after remaining clean for 23 years. Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of my favorite actors of all time, and I'm saddened that yet another one of our generation's greats has been taken too soon due to to the ugly disease of addiction. He will be missed, but at the same time, I can't help but be angry as I was with Chris Farley, Heath Ledger, and so many others. It's just such a waste of immense talent. It frustrates me. And that's pretty much all I have to say about that. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman was probably lined up for several roles over the next couple of years because he's that great and sought after of an actor. God, this is just a shame. Yeah, along those lines, Philip Seymour Hoffman only had one week of shooting left on The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. Oscar winner Philip Seymour Hoffman's death this week has cast a cloud of uncertainty over how his untimely passing might affect a number of his upcoming projects, including the two-part finale of The Hunger Games. Hoffman joined the franchise's head game maker Pushark Havensby in last year's blockbuster The Hunger Games Catching Fire. The Hollywood Reporter claims Hoffman had completed his work for Part 1 and had only seven days remaining to shoot on The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. Sources say the film's scheduled release date of November 21st 2014 and November 20th 2015 respectively will not be affected by Hoffman's death just in case those without a heart were worried that this amazing actor's untimely death would affect their precious films in some way. Less uncertain is the fate of the upcoming Showtime comedy series Happy-ish in which Hoffman played the lead. It's not certain how much of the show had actually been completed whether Showtime will recast the lead or scrap the series entirely now. In addition to Mockingjay, Hoffman's posthumous releases will include God's Pocket and a most wanted man. Like Dan said, 
a very popular and very talented actor who a lot of his a lot of his work will still be seen even though he's he's died because production's already done or it was coming out in the next couple months. Yeah, and I'm interested to see his last few films, I guess, now, so we'll see. Yeah, yep. Ghostbusters Lego set is a reality. Yes. The Ghostbusters are being reimagined in Lego form with Winston Zedmore, Peter Venkman, Ray Stans, and Egon Spengler soon to be min- minifigures. The final designs are currently being developed with Lego Ghostbusters set to be released later this year to coincide with the film's 30th anniversary. The final set will feature four minifigures and a version of Ecto-1. Oh man, I would want a firehouse. One of the one of the customs built ones by just a fan of the show yeah. and and what they're basing the official Ghostbusters sets on built the firehouse and awesome. so that might be uh, one of the ones as well. Kind also tear up a Lego Ghostbusters video game. <laughs> throw that out there. That would be awesome. Yes, or just a Ghostbusters game in general. Yes. Well, they had the one of the Xbox. And PS3 that was pretty good. Uh, I didn't play that one. I gotta look at that. Yeah, check it out. It's it's actually written as Ghostbusters 3. Oh, cool. So it's it's pretty neat. Sharknado sequel casting news. Oh, Shar- Sharknado stars Ian Ziering and Tara Reid are heading back into the eye of the storm. The pair have signed on to reprise their respective roles as Finn and April in sci-fi's impending sequel, Sharknado 2, the second one. What a great title. I know. The follow-up, which will be set in New York City, starts shooting in February. It's so bad but great. Bones is renewed for season 10. Ugh. Fox has officially renewed the veteran crime procedural for a 10th season. Kevin Riley, chairman of entertainment for Fox, hinted during the recent Television Critics Association writers' winter press tour that a renewal was likely to happen, and now it has happened. So it sounds like this was decided a while ago, and the network was just waiting to announce it until the details were finalized. There's no indication that season 10 will be the show's last, but it's widely considered by people in the biz, technical term there, to be the end of the road for Booth and Brennan. Thank goodness. This ninth season should have been it, but at least it looks like 10 will be the final. Talk about lipid to the finish line. Yeah, absolutely. Friday night, please? Tell me it's going to be on Friday night. No, it it got moved to Monday. Monday night. It's going to reprise its night on Monday. Apparently, it's doing well on Friday, and they figured, why not give it back its Monday night? They got better shows on Monday night, though. You would think. You would think. Some Sleepy Hollow news. John Noble and Lindy Greenwood made series regular for Season 2. Two of the locals in Sleepy Hollow will see increased screen time in Season 2, as John Noble and Lindy Greenwood are both being promoted from recurring to series regulars. Coming off of his acclaimed work on another Fox genre series, Fringe, Noble appears in three season one episodes as Henry Parrish, while Greenwood, who was simultaneously wrapping up her role on Nikita, was a frequent presence appearing in ten of the thirteen episodes as Jenny Mills. The season one finale made it clear Parrish would play a big role in the future events, while Jenny's fate was more ambiguous. Sleepy Hollow was one of this fall's success stories and the first new network series to get a renewal, after just three episodes had aired, in fact. The season two order is again for 13 episodes, though Fox chairman of entertainment Kevin Riley recently noted, we may do a few more, there's not a magic number. Riley noted that because of the early renewal and shorter seasons, Sleepy Hollow will actually be back in production for season two in March, months ahead of most fall series which typically don't begin filming new seasons until midsummer. Good news for this great new show. I think if they add more episodes, I would like to see like 16. 
I don't want to see a full-out 22-22. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. It was going to be a few more, so maybe from 13 to 15, like the following. Because Fox has really got it right with doing this. Yeah. Because they're going to do Sleepy Hollow like this. They're going to do the following, and then maybe subsequent more seasons of 24, if the new return works. Right. And I think it's smart to do it this way, tw- with 12 episodes. And in the case of the 24 series, I think that may revitalize that show. Yeah, maybe. Because the problem with the 24-hour clock was it was too many filler episodes to fulfill that. So yeah. that they went down to 12, I think it's going to be a much more fast-paced show. That'd be quite better. So kudos to CP Hollow for approving the Fox that this works. In our final news item, Doctor Who news. You can take a look at Peter Capaldi as the 12th Doctor. Production on Doctor Who Series 8 is underway in Cardiff, and this week the BBC has unveiled the first look at Peter Capaldi's as the 12th Doctor, as well as one of he and companion Clara Oswald, played by Jenna Coleman, on set. Capaldi can be seen in the costume that will define his time as the 12th Time Lord, the BBC said in a press release. Sporting a dark blue crombie coat with a red lining, dark blue trousers, a white shirt, as well as black Doc Martin shoes, the look was created by Doctor Who costume designer Howard Burden. Really, this is a visual story, so check out this at the link in the ACC feed or visit our Facebook page for a look at the 12th Doctor in his new full costume. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. So I guess now we're going to bring Andy into the party, correct? Yeah, we're going to kick things off this week with Andy again, and we're going to talk about the following episode for Joe. Ryan receives a call from two of the subway killers who begin a deadly game with him. Meanwhile, Joe's cover identity is at risk when a local revenant realizes who he is. This week's episode for Joe didn't exactly ramp up the tension. Instead, it acted mostly as a more elaborated-on version of the season premiere, often relying on the same thrills that were introduced last week. Now, I'm not really complaining about that. I was just expecting maybe a continuation or or more kills and something bigger this week. Now the biggest difference for this week was that Joe was now a full part of the story, hiding out down in Arkansas with the town prostitute, another follower played by Terry Preston, working on his awful southern draw. <laughs> God, that was bad. But at least they were aware of how bad it was and made a joke about it, because it was bad. <laughs> he was also developing a sort of simple life surrogate family with her and her daughter Mandy, that was until the local reverend recognized Joe, despite his burly beard, from a TV news footage, and then things got complicated. Like, stab a dude, complicated. However, instead of the show having Joe act immediately malicious, they put him through an existential ringer. Which seems silly, since any and all attempts to give Joe depth and layers this late in the series is a bit laughable. Here it came off as a stalling tactic, as Joe both demanded the Reverend to help him find redemption, even though he scoffed at his earlier attempt to pray with him, and just ended up killing him in the end anyhow. So the biggest twist to come out of all of this, though, was the fact that Joe didn't wind up calling the New York number at the end, signifying that he's not ready to return to his old life just yet, even though he was willing to kill the Reverend. Andy, were you interested in Joe's existential crisis, or did you find it merely a stalling tactic like I did? Were you glad that they included Joe more in this week's episode? Well, you know how much I love Joe. He's like, you know, he's so psychotic, he's just so interesting as a character and as a villain. I don't know if I agree with you if it's, you know, if it's too late for him to try to find redemption because you know it's never well it's it's some sometimes too late sometimes it's not but i feel that you know any villain like 
Joe needs to at least try at some point. Whether it, whether or not it makes sense to us as viewers doesn't really matter. It needs to, you know, be seen in him. So I like, I like to see that. Yes, his sudden accent was awful. Like, <laughs> no, no, sweetie, it was not just the R's. It was the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm having problems with the R's. I'm like, no, you're having problems with the whole thing. No, but I, I really enjoyed it. You know, the more Joe we can get, the better. And I, I like to see him have tried to have a simple life. And it was interesting at the, you know, at the end, before he stabbed the Reverend that he was struggling. He didn't know what he was doing or, you know, if he was going to do it or not. But yeah, I really enjoyed that part a lot. Now, although when Joe does finally call that number, which I think is going to come soon, I have to expect Lily, the new blonde lady, Ryan Riss, everything to protect this week, to pick up on the other end. Simply because this show has taught me to suspect everyone, especially the ones the show goes to great lengths to vet, and especially beautiful ladies that Ryan has an eye for. Andy, are you suspecting this Lily character as well, or is she going to be the Claire substitute for this season? Claire substitute. Yeah. Like, it was... I was... I have nothing as actually. I was just rolling my eyes at, you know, oh, it had to be a blonde. Oh, it, she has to look almost like Claire. You know, she has some similarities to the actress who played Claire. I'm like, oh, I... Ryan, you, you silly hat. You know, you, you don't... You, you can't comprehend love right now. You, you're messed up, you know, whether or not you were going to confess that. Like, you're more messed up than Batman is. This is not the show I want to have a love re- relationship in. I don't feel it's necessary, to be honest. So you didn't suspect her at all, or? No, I, it's, no, it's. Okay. So I don't pretty, see her. You're pretty solid that it, she's gonna be the love interest and, and she's not gonna betray him. Okay. I like that idea. I, I'm just so in tune with the show, or tr- trained by the show to suspect everyone that I had. Oh, me too. bells were going off in my head saying, don't trust her. She's a, she's a bad guy. And did whole... you get did you get nervous when um, when Ryan was talking to that FBI agent at the gala, whatever it was, saying you know that you know we have you know we you know asking how many how many of you are there and so well you know get you know we have two suspect you know suspects and so on. Yeah, like I said, I suspect everyone. So that's what this show has done to me. It's done to all of us. Like it should not yeah. be called the following. It should be called the paranoids. Yeah. Okay. I harped on Joe's southern drawl and how bad it was and how I didn't really like that aspect of the show, but I do like Joe's relationship with Mandy. I'm not sure why he's becoming semi-nurturing around her when she's almost the age of the girls he used to brutally murder, but we'll just chalk that up to his transitional phase right now. He's like, he's a psychopath. She, on the other hand, is definitely not as enamored with him at the end of the episode as she was at the beginning. He once made her feel safe, and now she's learned the hard way that killing folks is pretty bad news. I like this turn of events because unlike most people who are seduced by Joe's killings and become a follower, the killing experience for Mandy showed her to be a normal person and not the psychopaths that have inhabited his cult. Andy, any thoughts on why he's taking such a liking to this Mandy character and whether that will continue now that she seems to have seen him for the monster he is? Well, I think that the reason why he has such a liking for Mandy is, I think that for him, it was kind of his attempt of redemption. Okay. I feel like that, you know, that, uh, by having someone he kind to and not, you know, corrupt or bait something like that, I think that's his, his way of redemption. But we will see what happens. Like, who knows? Maybe she will, you know, because she did ask him, what's it like to kill? She wasn't even scared to ask that question. I'm like, is she eventually going to become obsessed with Joe as well? Who knows? 
Right. She felt a little bit like a budding Emma until the killing, and then realized, nope, this is not my thing. Because she was fascinated, like you said, in learning about his past and what it felt like to kill. And, you know, she, she smacked the reverend across the face with the shovel to knock him out when he was trying to escape. So she was complicit in his murder until the fact Joe tied him up and then killed him in front of her. And she was like, nope, this is not for me. So I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes now. I think the reason why why she did that was I think it was a little, a little bit personal as well because he was kind of you know like oh you're getting more beautiful and beautiful and f- trying to hit on her so I think that was kind of I think she did it for herself in in a way but I could that's maybe just I think she was trying to help Joe as well I think that part of that was because she was kind of, kind of disgusted by him Now Luke and Mark continue to be their unsettling selves killing a husband and wife sparing the young son and playing family with him all day long I was happy to see Ryan finally see one of them to get that out of the way, but I can't help but feel there was something cooler still to be done here with there being twins and all. Like, maybe they should have kept that a secret a little while longer, because as it was, they never really used it to do anything really clever, save for distracting Ryan for a split second in this episode. Now their gimmick is blown, and it'll be easier to find them, making me wonder why they were written to be twins to begin with, since when it came right down to it, they were just as effective as any other two-man killing people. So why did it have to be twins? Is that going to be important? Andy, any thoughts on them revealing Luke and Mark to be twins so early? Do you think it was a mistake or not? Well, first off, you know, you're wondering why they had to be twins. Dude, the actor is hot. <laughs> That's not enough. Uh, it is because, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna sound crazy. Like, even though they are psychopaths, they're hot psychopaths. I don't get turned on by them being psychopaths with, you know, by playing family and so on. You know, the actor, he's hot. But I, here's the thing. I think that we're learning more and more that these two guys are looking for a family, I think. I think they're really lonely. I think, you know, something's messed up in their head. And I think they, they're, they're just lonely. Just like Ryan said. Yeah, that, there's definitely something wrong with them. And even Luke or Mark or one of them, when he was making that speech or having that conversation with the dead dad, the other one gave him a look like, whoa. Yeah, so, exactly. Like he, didn't, like he didn't know anything about that, which means I think they had a complicated, one of them had a complicated relationship with the dad while the other one didn't. Yeah, I, I'm guessing they came from an abusive family or... Ooh, what if Joe is their dad? That's interesting. I like that idea. It probably doesn't track, but I'm going to say that would be an interesting twist. And also to ask you, answer your question, I don't think it was a mistake. Because remember, we are we are also in a fifteen episode season, so they, and also we're gonna, you know, the, there are probably not gonna be any breaks, so we need to keep going. And I feel that you know, Ryan is a smart guy. You know, there's no way he's gonna be able to not notice them for a long time. So I feel it was better they did it than now. And also, it kind of ramps ramps it up a bit and so on. So I realized that, that he got to find out a bit early and so on. Uh, do, do you feel like it ruined the overall? arc with a season in a way when you saw that happen? It didn't ruin it. I just think there's a lot they could have done with the whole them being twins and I think there needed to be more of a chasing the one guy and then he seems to disappear and then like it almost seems supernatural with how far he got away because you know like one would hide and then the other one would be running way down the hallway or you know they would do tricks like that with the twin thing and it would confuse Ryan and confuse anybody who was trying to investigate them. And I just think there was a lot of stuff they could have done with that, and they kind of missed out on some of those. They 
They could have, but the thing is, like, we've done this before, you know, when we have the hero chasing a villain, and then, you know, finally there's two of them, you know, he's, you know, there's a cat and mouse game, basically, where he thinks he's going nuts, uh, seeing two of them, then, you know, people are going to start thinking he's losing his mind and so on, and yada, yada, yada. So I think, you know, that's been done so much. I think that's why the writers decided not to do that, because, you know, people already think Ryan has, has lost it anyway. So I feel, you know, there's no reason why to give people more reason to think he is. Sure. By having him playing cat and mouse, basically, with the twins. Yeah, I think it just, if they were going to reveal it in this episode like they did, I think it needed to raise the stakes, and I think they sh- should have put Ryan in more peril in doing so. I think he should have, it should have been, like, they almost, almost were able to kill him because it was two of them, and he only expected one. And the fight they had was, was fine, but it wasn't enough, in my opinion, to be the reveal that there are two of them. I don't know, the I one, was just, I, I wanted more out of the, that reveal. The one issue I had with the back, with the vice scene was when he shot, was it Luke or Mark? I think it was Luke. Yeah. Yeah, he it just looks. Really <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it just looked so clumsy when he got shot. Yeah. Yeah, that, like, that's true. It, yeah, that was, you know, we, we, we see better scenes when people get shot in a better way. Like, that looks look clumsy to me. But, you know, I'm sorry about the detail. Let's move on to the last <laughs> point. All right, well, that's all the time we have for this week. This episode for Joe felt like a bit of an unnecessary come down after the season premiere, because the season premiere was so great. Despite the fact that Joe returning should have made it feel more vital. It was by no means a bad episode and had plenty of action and story movement. I was just so amped last week that this week didn't seem to be able to keep me as excited. By the way, if you actually call 917-829-4091 from the show, it's pretty awesome and Joe Carroll himself has a special message for you. So go ahead and try that. What? Great work. No, you're, you're, kid, you're kidding me. You're kidding. No. Is there? Oh my god, we need, okay, we need to finish it right. I, I want to call that number. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Gotta call that number. There's a real creepy little message from Joe. It's it's fun. Okay. Anyway, we'll be back next week for a discussion on the following episode entitled Trust Me. Talk to you guys then. Talk to you then. Alright, thanks Andy for joining me again this season to discuss the following. Now Dan will take over as we discuss this week's episode of Intelligence. That's right folks, I'm back. Okay, we're going to discuss the intelligence episode that seems to be taken to show off another notch, and that's the episode Secrets of the Secret Service. Riley ends up working with her ex-boyfriend, whom she encounters when she and Gabriel travel to Syria and pose as Secret Service agents in order to free two American journalists being held hostage. I thought that this week's intelligence pulling back with the sci-fi from last week's episode made the show much more accessible for CBS's usual audience, which are the people into, you know, stuff like CIS and CSI. Again, Nico and I can go pretty far down the rabbit hole when it comes to sci-fi, but in my mind, I feel like intelligence needs to ease into it, like person of interest. By placing Gabriel in conflicts that can happen in real life, such as Syria abducting American journalists, kind of creating the potential for war. Nico, do you think intelligence needs to focus on having Gabriel face more realistic conflicts while it acquires more of an audience? Can they bring in the more heavier aspects of the sci-fi plan for the show? Yeah, Dan, I suppose this is a smart move to attempt to garner a larger and wider audience than, say, what would normally be enticed by the sci-fi action aspect of this show by focusing more on the drama and similar story arcs as you might see on an NCIS or even person of interest. 
I don't have a problem with that, but I do hope they retain the themes, story arcs, and interesting sci-fi that brought us to this show in the beginning and don't lose that completely as they go forward. I think they're working on finding a balance. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know why I'm so leery about the show going too overboard with sci-fi. I don't know if it's because it's CBS, but I don't think of CBS as sci-fi, as a sci-fi network. You know, I expect something like this more so on like an NBC or a, a CW show. So seeing CBS tackle, it's interesting, and I just haven't figured out in my head what I define as CBS is high quality sci-fi, because I do consider CBS is a really high quality network. So I just haven't figured out what sci-fi and a high quality network is exactly yet. Yeah, I think that that's, those kind of distinctions are going to have to go out the door, because yeah. like with person of interest being on CBS and being successful, I think it's going to change, and I think the idea of television where certain shows don't work on a certain network is going to be a thing of the past. I think yeah. things are going to change so much in with the internet and things being you know, started on the internet. Like we're getting Amazon, we're getting Netflix, we're getting all these different studios or places where studios can send their, their shows as right. well. That that kind of stuff is just going to be a th- an ancient thing, a thing of the past. Well, they also realize the tech people are on the computers watching a lot of this stuff. And they're finally looking at it and saying, okay, you know, we need to make money from these places. You know, I, I think it's your theory about how the old model needs to go away with the way they look at television. So yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, for this episode of uh, Intelligence, two things that really stuck me in the episode was Michael Truco, who I've liked from Battlestar Galactica and he's like Castle and other things, starring as Riley's ex-boyfriend. Because I was really intrigued about what happened between them regarding Panama. And I really also like the former president viewing Gabriel as what he should be, a true American hero. The character archetype that really will keep me watching any show. Guys, I just, the patriotism about it makes me feel good. Nico, were these the things that sucked you into this episode? Dan, to be honest, I was not all that interested in Riley and her ex-boyfriend slash partner and what happened in Panama. Sure, it added to the backstory of Riley, but it was not super necessary. As for the former president who helped kickstart the clockwork program that led to Gabriel getting the chip, him getting an opportunity to see it in action, I did enjoy that story aspect. I thought it was great that the former president felt that Gabriel was a hero and at the same time felt he needed to test him out at the same time, you know? It was kind of fun. That was the more interesting side of the story for me this week, and so that was what really captured my attention rather than the whole Riley and her ex-partner. Yeah, and really for what happened in Panama, I was a little disappointed that it just turned out to be the ex-boyfriend taking the raise Riley deserved. I mean, it just kind of was, made this whole story, like you said, trivial stuff. But I did like how it kind of ended somewhat as it tightening uh, Riley's relationship with Gabriel, with him explaining, this is where you need to be, you're meant to do this job. I thought that was good. Nico, did you expect a lot of bigger revelation to come out of Riley's side of the story that influenced or progressed the overarching story? As I said, I was not really fascinated with this backstory, so I wasn't really disappointed. Besides, the whole classified aspect of that mission was that it never officially happened. The VP got into an altercation while in Panama, and the Secret Service covered it up. That was what was so secretive about the mission. So, yeah, yeah, not all that secretive, you know. The fact that it was classified is why her partner was able to take all the credit and the promotion because it was classified, so nobody really was looking into it other than the higher-ups at the Secret Service. So he screwed her. It wasn't really all that secret except for that the VP got into some altercation while in Panama, and the Secret Service had to cover it up so that there was no scandal. You don't think the VP or the altercation is going to come back? 
in any way? I think lesson? only in a positive way. I think okay. the, the VP maybe will find out what happened or, you know, maybe hear that Riley had been canned or de- demoted because, okay. and he knew what really happened. And he's like, why is this going on or something of that nature? And that he gets involved and then it causes problems because she's in this new secret assignment with Gabriel. And like, th- it'll be a positive thing in the end though. Okay. I feel you on that. I gotcha. Okay, there were also really two big twists in the episode to keep us interested. As in the reporters, Gabriel was set to save, actually means CIA agents. Because the one Gabriel saved, he had out a wet operation to kill the scientist Clockwork thought they needed to extradite. Nico, these twists obviously weren't as shocking or surprising as something we'd expect from a person of interest episode or a good castle mystery. But did they keep your focus while watching this episode? Yeah, I thought the fact that the reporters turned out to actually be spies was a nice touch and a somewhat un- unexpected surprise, even if you could have suspected it from the beginning. But the operative continuing her mission to kill the scientists even on the exfiltration flight was not something I saw coming. Yeah. So I was surprised by that. I agree. Okay, and really, finally, with this episode, I'm just loving the standoff that's going on between the veteran TV actors. Mark Hellenberg is the head of Clockwork. Ken Lance Rick is the head of the CIA. Because it really updates the old 80s Robocop debate of what makes a weapon better, man or a machine, to the standards of modern-day America. And in the fight to maintain his rule amongst this debate, I foresee that we will see the former president from this episode return in the future as an ally to Gabriel citing that it's who Gabriel is that makes him America's best weapon, not the government controlling the chip within his head. Nico, are you entertained by the class between the CIA and Clockwork, as well as the actors that are spearheaded? Also, do you think Gabriel's free will is going to be put on the table for political or bureaucratic debates, forcing him to seek out help? Yeah, Dan, I am tr- intrigued by this clash between the CIA and Clockwork, and think that it will be the major clash of season one and beyond if this show gets that far. Right. I think ultimately the story will come to the conflict of the government, i.e. the CIA, feeling that Gabriel has become unmanageable and will try to force Clockwork to shut down his chip. They will somehow convince the president that he has become a terrorist or a danger of becoming a danger to the United States because he is too powerful and they are no longer able to control him. That's where I think you are correct in that the former president will step in and be an ally to Gabriel and help ensure he's not shut down or locked in a Faraday cage for the rest of his life if they're not able to actually shut down the chip like the CIA wants. His humanity, I think, will ultimately be the argument for not doing this, but the CIA will want him to be a controllable machine. It's an interesting concept, and I do hope this show gets a chance to explore these story arcs. Well, it's something that we get the superhero audience excited. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Same type of dilemma. I, I was watching Man of Steel, actually, recently over the weekend. God, their whole thing was Superman. In that movie, their paranoia was they couldn't control him either. You know, they didn't know what he was thinking. He's a superhero. Because they're afraid of that. And so, intelligence is really doing a good job of hitting those threads in a very different way. Yeah. That is possible within our society. I, I would think someone has theorized this or worked on a way for computer chips to be fused with the human brain in some capacity. Yeah, I think it's quite a few years off still. <laughs> but yeah, right, I think, but I think people the, are working. Yeah. On. Uh, the contact lips thing that was the week before where she had the computer data and the contact lights. Yeah. I know that's something that's getting worked on. Sure. I don't know how far along it is, but it's the thought is out there. So yeah, so this was a decent episode. CBS is saying the one, the next episode of Intelligence coming this Monday is going to be the one you need to see where it hits its stride. But I think for the first four episodes it's doing so far so good. Okay. Do you agree? Yeah, I'm just worried that the 
ratings have not been strong enough that this show is on, you know, CBS is such a powerhouse network that low ratings will get a show canceled very quickly. Well, the other problem with intelligence is I, I think it's going up against the black blacklist, which established itself as a big new show. And so I think they've got the viewers locked in for Blacklist and people aren't changing up to intelligence because they already got caught up in Blacklist. I think that's possible, but that's why I also think that CBS might cancel this show yeah. and it's not really doing poorly. It's, it's, you know, it's just not doing well on CBS. I think they for should CBS move, standards. I, I think they should move it first and then see, but I don't know if they might not do that. Yeah, but by the time, uh, a show is they're willing to move a show they're usually thinking about canceling it and yeah. they just want to burn off the rest of the, so it would have to have a major uptick on the night that they moved it right because hostages didn't work very well that spot either no no it did not so we'll see but anyway let's move on now to a show that we know is established at least for a little bit longer because that's supernatural with an episode that really took an interesting turn with one of its major supporting characters and that's the episode called sharp teeth Garth ends up in the hospital, and Sam and Dean go to find out what happened. However, when they arrive, Garth goes on the run, and the Winchesters are surprised to discover what really happened. Wait a minute, Garth has become a werewolf? Got his married? I certainly didn't see that one coming. Nico, were you surprised by this turn of events? Okay, Garth's story? Okay, did you think it worked for his character? Uh, yeah, completely surprised. Yeah. And to be honest, not really all that thrilled by this turn of events. I always thought Garth was a little strange, yeah. but definitely in a good way. I'm not sure turning him into a werewolf or lycanthrope, if you're being PC, was the best course of action. It essentially ends his tenure on the show because not many hunters would look the other way this, the way Sam and Dean did this week, and most that would are not exactly going to work with a werewolf. That being said, it was an alright episode. Yeah, and I, I think this was the end for DJ Qualls. I, I don't know if we're going to see Garth again. Yeah, I don't think so. Because we barely got any episodes with him at the end of last season. Uh, they kept making up excuses, and I think they just got tired of it, so let's write them out. But they're, they're running out of people to restart the of letters with though so <laughs> right. i don't know how that's gonna work but maybe it's gonna turn around soon i don't know anyway i liked this episode for two reasons kind it wasn't the greatest but i liked it for these reasons first i thought the concern about some of the winchesters viewed as family aka garth was a great way to get the brothers back together on a case got second the advice Dean needed to hear about looking past revenge coming from the unlikely source of a werewolf minister was interesting because it set the stage for the current overarching conflict to be resolved in a way that I think goes beyond ganking some big bad mobs. Nico, were these the things that made the episode enjoyable in your mind? Or was there anything that made this episode the success you wanted to mention? I think the werewolf minister was a success in this episode, and Garth was his goofy self, so that was enjoyable yeah. as well. But as I said, turning Garth into a werewolf was not the way I would have gone. Sure, it forced Sam and Dean to reevaluate their situation and focus on what exactly makes up their family. And if they could accept a former family member that has turned monster, sort of, these, you know, that sort of made them reevaluate why they were fighting or what was going on between them. These were interesting things to dive into, and they did it well enough. It just was not what I was expecting. So did Garth turning into the werewolf kind of take you out of the episode? Uh, yeah. Okay. So they had you, and then he's like, I'm a werewolf. You're like, I've got it. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, I, I was able to enjoy it, but yeah. it, it was it was enough to be like, I don't know if this is the way to, way things should be going. But it wasn't a, a show killer thing for you, though. Well, very few things would be a show killer at this okay. point in the ninth season. You know, maybe the death of one of the brothers. 
Yeah. For a stupid reason. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Well, they've kind of done that before and then fixed it. <laughs> yeah, but I never felt like it was a bad way things right. had gone. There was always movement in the story. I mean, if they just decided that one of the two brothers was, was, dead, no, was not yeah. didn't want to be part of the show anymore and they just killed him in kind of a yeah. you know, terrible way, I, I would not want to watch the show anymore. Moving forward, this episode was set up to go one of two ways. With Kar's werewolf combat being what he claimed them to be, you know, a family and safe, or the danger that Dean tried to weed out. Ultimately, they went with the middle of the road on this debate between Dean and Garth, because the minister's wife broke away from the combat, believing that werewolves should rule over the humans instead of coexisting with them. And I was kind of glad it went this way, because Garth losing his newfound wife or family, I think just would have been too dark for his character. Kind of would have went even farther than the surprise of them being the werewolf. Now, do you agree on that, Nico? Yeah, Dan, I'm glad it went sort of the middle of the roadway this week as well. If Garth had lost everything and become a hunter werewolf, it would not have been as successful. Rather, his wife and father-in-law surviving gave him that semi-happy ending that we hope for Sam and Dean at the end of their run on this show. So it was kind of the best way to to wrap up this maybe less successful story arc for Garth. Now, when I wrote this script here, it was kind of almost immediately after I watched the episode. And now looking at what I got here, I, I kind of want to step back a little bit on this. I did say that I was slightly disappointed that Garth didn't get the opportunity to werewolf out on his wayward stepmother-in-law and save his wife. And I mean, I don't know about that. It might have been just too, too ridiculous or dark, even if he had done that. I, I would have liked Garth to get the opportunity to be the hero, but I don't know if werewolfing out would have been the way to do it because we don't think of Garth as a vicious person, so maybe that was good that Dean got the credit to save the day. Nico, you think Garth should have gotten in on more with the action at the end of the episode? or I do, absolutely. Okay. I thought that was a misstep within this story, not having Garth save the Winchesters and rather going with Dean saving Garth and Sam was a mistake. It would have been much more satisfying and helpful to Dean accepting Garth as the same guy he was to have him save the day just with a new challenge he has to face. If I had been the writer this week, that's how I would have handled it. I, I just think... Would you have had Garth transform and just slash her to death or... I think I would have had him transform, break out of his the bonds that were getting keeping him, him take out the woman, and then be able to control okay. the wolf and revert back to show Dean that okay. he can handle it. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it needed to be handled. Now, could you have seen it where he like used his werewolf powers uh, to break out of the chains? And then kill her like a hunter? I think he would still be in wolf state. So yes, the wolf state. But yeah, I could see him have... Okay. I don't think a werewolf can pick up a gun and shoot it. Right. I think... Well, I mean, in this episode, they maybe. didn't really... They didn't have every, everyone fully wolf out. Right. Either, which was interesting. So maybe he would have been able to control it to the point where he could have full wolf gone back to Garth and just used his claws or something to right. kill. That would have been interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, that's just a thought. Yeah, sure. I just wasn't sure if it was too much to see him be a vicious monster because good as Garth, you know? Right. I don't think it would have been really a vicious monster in the sense that you would have been able to accept him killing in, a, you know, any way possible because he was protecting his wife and he was protecting Sam and Dean. So we could see, we could accept it because as long as he was able to control it in the end, I think it would have been along the lines of what we expect from Garth. Okay. Well, with my last kind of point about Garth himself, I guess this this, this probably will be the last time we see him. I'm just going to kind of give a love note to the character and say that one of the things really I have enjoyed about him in his spirits since Jeremy Carver has taken over is how he's almost 
been portrayed like the Jimmy Olsen to Dean Superman. I guess I know Dean isn't the Boy Scout Superman is known to be, but Garth kind of idolizes him in the same way. It brings a sense of naive or innocent optimism to the otherwise dark world of Supernatural that I think inspires the Winchesters to become better. And I'm hoping, I don't know if this will happen, that Garth's words of wisdom surrounding his willingness to make things right regarding Kevin by leaving his family back will come into play to kind of be something that stops Steve from going down the dark path we were fearing last week. Nico, can we look at this conversation between Garth and Steve as something that kind of well, inadvertently divert our concerns about the eldest Winchester brother going dark? And did you think the character of Garth worked for this episode in the way that I mentioned? I'm not sure, Dan. I think Garth's conversation with Dean will be important, but I'm not sure it will keep Dean from the dark path he is going to have to walk. As I said last week, I think Dean will walk that dark path, but that I don't think he will go dark himself. So I'm not sure if this conversation with Garth will have the necessary effect or keep Dean from walking that dark path, but I suspect it may help keep him from going dark himself. Okay. Just kind of how far are they going to go with Dean? kind of straddling that line of going dark. Well, I think he's going to walk the dark path, and he's okay. going to go all the way to kill Abaddon and then turn the mark against Cain okay. like he promised he would. That but means... I think in the process, he won't ever lose himself to it. Is he going to go down as far down the rabbit hole as Sam was at the end of season four? I think maybe. I, I think maybe, but at the same time, like I said, he won't have lost sight of who he is and what he's doing. I think he just, the path he will need to walk is going to be very dark and not exactly what we expect from the Winchesters. But in the end, when it's done, he will still be the same person he's always been. And it won't have negatively affected him the way that it did Sam in season four. Okay, great. That makes sense. Kind of wrapping things up on this week's Supernatural. Where are they going with the Winchesters by Sam telling Dean they can't be brothers if they work together? Is this like implying that for things to be good, between the brothers they need to set up something like the restarting the Men of Letters theory that we had last season with Dean and Cass or another character going out on the road kind of doing the hunting while Sam and a group of allies stay behind at the library doing research? What do you think on this one, Nico? Dan, I have no idea what they're doing with this <laughs> whole Sam telling Dean that they can't be brothers and work together. That's crazy, and I'm not sure what the hell that means. I just wanted Dean to say, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping you're correct that that means that they work together but not together in a way that is similar to our Men of Letters theory we've been throwing around for the last year and that you mentioned just a second ago. I could see that working with Sam running the Men of Letters library, the FBI and local law enforcement phone bank, and the monster research and weapons development slash procurement departments back at the library slash Batcave. And Dean will run the hunters and hunter training programs out on the road. But seriously, what the hell is this we can't be brothers thing all about? Ah. Explain, please. Yeah. It, ah, I'm not happy about it. I'm, I think it's a mistake. I was sitting there to like, say what? I think they're just saying there's conflict between the brothers. They need to figure it out. God, they're holding us over for a week so we can deal with the next stage of the conflict, I guess. Okay. I mean, again, I see the nine your craftsman at straws for ways for these guys to go at it with each other back a little bit. Yeah, it might be time that they don't do that anymore. <laughs> yes. Uh I, I think there's an in game in mind and I think we'll be satisfied with it. But getting there right now is going to be a little bit of a trip. Right. Okay, this episode, I, I would say out of this season, this is probably the weakest one, maybe. Yeah, de I definitely think that. 
CW's known to have their week episode, the winner, so we'll, we'll give them an audible on this one. Okay. So with that, let's move on to an episode that really had a hilarious title. I mean, it's a, a fun show that we know about called Psych. Okay, let's talk now about the episode, Someone's Got a Woody. Thank you out in the end. Desperate man takes Woody hostage to prove he did not kill the victim in the morgue, and Sean, Gus, Lassiter, and Juliet try to resolve the situation peacefully. Trout, however, has other plans that may put Woody in mortal danger. Nico, what do you think about Woody being taken hostage in the morgue by that weird foreign guy who always seems to be a shady criminal in Michael Bay movies? Did you think this scenario lived up to its potential on the laughs? You know, Dan, I didn't think that Woody's being taken hostage really lent itself to all that much humor in itself, but yeah. rather most of my enjoyment came from the random limes and pop culture references, much like most weeks. Kurt Fuller is great, but Woody's kidnapping slash hostage situation just wasn't as hilarious as I had expected. So I was a little disappointed in that aspect of the show, but the rest of the episode made up for it, so I was okay. It was more things Kurt Fuller said that was funny. Yeah, absolutely. Because Woody than the actual situation, yeah. And I think really my favorite part of the early stages of Woody being taken hostage was how Sean and Gus's harebrained schemes to get a part of the case kind of reminded me of a classic Looney Tunes cartoon or, you know, a Three Stooges short as their antics which included the return of the half-beard disguise, kept getting them into more and more trouble until Trout finally decided to throw them in jail, which I'm surprised didn't happen to them years ago on the series, but, you know, whatever. Psych. But, Nico, did you like how the past two episodes featuring Trout, Trout as the chief has brought back the concept of Sean having to come up with crazy ways for the psych agency to get a case? And is it something that has allowed the writers to look fondly back on the past to the final season capacity? I liked how it brought in puppets and hot dogs. But that's just me. Yeah, the past two episodes have seemed to be a fond looking back on the early seasons when Sean and Gus had to find creative ways for the psych agency to get hired onto the case. And with Trout taking over, it has seemed like they were harping back to the early years. It has been successful, but at the same time took a lot of time away from other aspects of the episode that could have been even more hilarious. So I'm glad this is probably over now that Chief Vic has to be returning soon. Right, because that's going to leave room open for, I think, conflict in Sean and Gus's relationship and some of those character overarching dilemmas that we've seen Sean face in past seasons. Sure. Like, last season was very heavy with Sean character development in terms of Jules fighting on a secret or whatnot. So that's kind of been missing so far this season. Right. But again, they've had an inconsistency on a reoccurring story arc with them being in London for the premiere and then doing the repeat episode about two weeks ago. And just, it's not been a consistent string of episodes. So once they get there, I think we'll get that back. Okay, going back to this episode, ultimately it was Woody who brought Sean and Gus get on the case with grapes and cheese to save his skin. Now, one step from here was all sorts of comedy, including the hostage taker making a fool out of Lassiter. The randomness of Trout wanting to end the hostage crisis quickly so he could catch his two broke girls. Got how awkward Woody made the situation of Jules pretending to be his daughter by throwing in a speech about the birds and the bees. But these things happen to a guy who has so few Twitter followers. However, what made me laugh the most was Sean taking out a persona, the persona of Carlos Emilio Estevez got Gus's rant about wanting to be the criminal instead of the corrections office, saying it would be like white collar than only blacker. So with that, Nico, you need to tie it up, man. Can share with us some of your favorite comedic moments from this week's psych. My favorite comedic moment from this week's episode were the lines like, Are you sure you know that my thighs are sensitive? No, why would I possibly know that? And since Wilson was murdered, he's due some good luck now. At least that's what math says. Would you please stop quoting math like it is a person? Next, you're going to tell me that math is black. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous, son. Verb is black. Verb is not... 
from his block. Told you. <laughs> or Sean saying, Do you have your half of the beard? And you know what's in the glove compartment. Those were my favorite parts of this episode. Yes, camaraderie between Sean and Gus. Great stuff. Yeah, really. I mean, the lines between these two were, yeah. were awesome this week. And that's what really made me excited about this episode. <laughs> Even though Woody had some good ones, I didn't think they ever really <laughs> materialized into the good stuff we were getting out of Sean and Gus. Yeah, I mean, these two guys are great together. It is. It's been that way for eight years. It never gets old. Yeah. Now, as for the resolution to this week's mystery, I thought it was going to end with Jules trying to protect Woody, got the hostage taker, by taking friendly fire from a trigger-heavy trout as a means of explaining Jules' brief departure from the series, where another female detective is supposedly set to take her place. Mika, did you see this as something that could happen to remove Trout from his position as chief of the Santa Barbara Police Department? God, don't tell me that Matthew's black. No, man. Burb is black. <laughs> I actually think that that idea would have been a great way to deal with Maggie Lawson's brief hiatus from the show and Mira Servino's appearance as the new female detective Betsy Brannigan. That's not how it all went down and Trout got the boot anyway, but having Jules shot in the raid and that being the reason Trout got fired would have been even better, I think. The only thing is, the reason why I think they decided against it was it was too dark for the show. But it could have been done funny. I think so. I, th I think it could have been pulled off funny. I, I don't know what they would have done exactly, but I think it would have been funny. Kind of would have set up a good plotline for Sean, I thought. You know. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't, I don't know if it would be like him worrying about her safety or something, but he'd have some goofy reaction to it. Okay, he'd have to deal with that. Sure. Or maybe that would be what pushes him into proposing or wanting to be more of an adult to propose to her. I don't know. You know, something like that. Again, Trout didn't do something horrible, like accidentally shoot one of his police officers, but he did screw up enough to get fired. And I thought he went out of the way that pokes some good fun. Got the haters of Psych. My commenting that he didn't see what made Sean and Gus, or I mean Sean and Jules, a cute couple. Uh, Nico, were you surprised to see Trout go so soon? Because I felt that removing him from his mission was going to be a season-long arc where Sean would have to learn to step aside and give Lassiter the credit for once in order to return things to status quo. You know, it does seem a little early, but at the same time, it was probably time for him to go before right. it got too annoying and started to affect our enjoyment of the show. Like I said a moment ago, the time it took for Sean and Gus to get hired onto the case each week took valuable time away from other hilarious bits and comedic gags. So it was about time for him to go. So I think it was a good move, but at the same time, it does seem a little bit early. Yeah. I did like the plotline of Lassiter kind of having to fight his way back to being a new detective again. Now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think he'll continue to have to do that, or is he just going to get his job back? No, I think that he will have to continue to do that because I think that Betsy Brannigan, when she comes in, may be made new head detective. Okay. I foresee Betsy Brannigan as a possible love interest for us. <laughs> It'd be funny. Because I just... The, the way next week's episode is set up to go, where Gus tries to take the lead on a case and he never wants to do that, makes right. me feel like he's trying to impress a girl. That sounds about right. I mean, it, it, it fits, and it would be that good, overarching character conflict that this season's been, that's been absent this season so far. So we'll right. see. But as I said, before the show ends, Gus needs a girl. And that's how that goes, son. <laughs> so with that, let's move on to uh, a show that says, Nanites are God. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to talk about Revolution episode, Happy and
With his wife held captive, Tom is ordered by President Davis to hunt down and kill Monroe. Meanwhile, Monroe, Charlie, and Miles head off in a risky mission to New Vegas to hire some mercenaries from one of Monroe's previous but dodgy acquaintances. Because Revolution doesn't have the talent or motivation or the time slot or network for that matter to go <laughs> all the way heavy or dark, it always works best when things lean a little more playful and fun, and it doesn't get more playful than featuring a throwaway cameo by Brett Michaels as an acoustic troubadour singing Every Rose Has Its Thorn, yes. accompanied by the line, when the world ends, there's going to be nothing left but cockroaches and Brett Michaels, and a carnival barker selling a look at Steven Tyler's mummified remains. It's lines like these that got me through some of Revolution's leaner episodes early on in this series, and what really helped with this episode as well. I'd hate to see those big lips mummified. <laughs> <laughs> But goofiness was counterbalanced by some genuine solid action sequences thanks to director Ernest Dickerson. Dickerson, who directed some of The Walking Dead's better episodes, including 18 Miles Out, the season 2 finale Beside the Dying Fire, brought life to a series that was maybe walking a little dead this season. Yeah. Especially in the panicky opening sequence that sprung Connor from last week's cliffhanger and got the typhus vaccine to the people. I really liked that sequence. His they made it grim and gritty. Yeah, his use, his use of quick zooms, gun sights, yeah. sniper shots, all amazing. Am I crazy, or was that no. the best revolution has looked maybe ever? It's a good grab by them to get this guy. Yeah, and although the final fight between Miles and the overgrown meathead was a straight-off rip-off of shirtless Brad Pitt's near-dive and snatch, it was a pretty decent fist fight yeah. for network television. Even if they insist upon that ludicrous jumping knockout punch that Hollywood loves but completely makes no sense. I mean, you're jumping in the air and losing all your power, which comes from swinging your hips. That's where you get your power in a punch. <sighs> anyway, Dan, what did you think of this episode? Was it one of the best visual episodes in your opinion as well? Well, you know, as uh, Chubb says, it's all in the hips. No, really, it was. It was very, very good visual. I think getting people from Walking Dead is great for this show because it needs to have that post-apocalyptic feel. And so getting people that know how to make it look that way, that make it look well, that can throw in the action, good call to bring in that. Yeah. Ernest Dickerson. So that was great. I agree with you on that one. And also, I love them having some fun with the throwbacks to, you know, classic rock, of course. Yeah, of That's course. That's trademark Kripke. You got to love it. It gets you excited. gets you into it. And I thought the whole thing, the sequence was stealing this, uh, the money from the casino was also shot very well. Doing the whole classic heist movie, Snatch and Grab sequence was pretty good, too. Yeah. So yeah, was, I, thought, I thought it was very well done in that sort of heist type of shooting. You know, they, they used all the same kind of visuals as you would expect in, in a modern heist movie. Because last season, they would have just taken the case of the Yeah. Because I would do that. Yep. As for what actually happened in this episode, well, actually quite a lot happened. Yeah. Monroe took Connor and Charlie to New Vegas to get some hired muscle so the Patriots will have people to actually kill during the big fight we know is coming. And Connor and Charlie flirted and then got it on like Donkey Kong. I mean, we all quick. saw this coming, but really, Charlie and Connor, I guess it's better than, you know, at least it's not big Monroe and Charlie. I know you were definitely against that matchup, but I that's, think where that's why it they brought like. in Connor to avoid it. Yeah, yeah. This scene was put side by side with Miles taking Rachel out on a terrible date, to which she said, 20 years of foreplay is long enough, and then they bumped uglies. Now, my mom laughed at Rachel's comments, but about all I could do was groan. Dan, what are your thoughts on these Matheson women getting it on this week? Necessary or just gratuitous sex? I think Miles and Rachel made sense. Yes, I agree. 
the testosterone was there for a while. Got all of that. I mean, it was going to happen sometime. And he told her he loved her. Yes. Charlie, Charlie and Connor, I get it with Charlie. Because she just doesn't give a crap. Right. I mean, that's the point they're trying to get across. And that, and that kind of, almost like Dean Winchester's into the ladies kind of thing. Connor, I just feel like he is a Jason 2.0. Right, exactly. Yeah, he's, he's a better character, but he's still kind of just as shallow. Yep. And you know how we feel about characters that we like having sons named Connor. <laughs> and how that goes. Yeah, I was thinking that the whole time we were, I was doing the write-up this week. Ugh. God, I hate, hated Connor and Angel. This guy's better. I don't hate the world that this character walks on, but... <laughs> right. It, it, I don't know. I, I just want to kind of go. Because I feel like he's bringing Monroe down. Yeah, I, I think they, I think the better move would just be to fix whatever's going on and make him a more of a part of the team rather than this whole Monroe and Connor secret alliance to make, yeah. to rebuild the Monroe Republic. I think it's going to go away. I do. Hopefully they're okay. smart enough to realize that. Yeah. Now, we also met the president who gave Tom Neville orders to find Monroe and murder him. And as motivation in case Tom should choose to disobey, he held Julia prisoner and promised to scoop out her eyeballs if Tom strayed from the mission. Which may happen. That was a nice touch. (laughs) (laughs) That put Tom and Jason in Willoughby with Gene, Miles, and Rachel, where Tom put on quite a show about wanting to massacre the Patriots for blowing up his wife. Yet again, another opportunity for Neville to practice his pathological lying skills. Thankfully, this seems to have sparked some life into the Neville and Jason story arc. Do you agree, Dan? Did this work to help Neville's story seem a little better? I mean, a little bit. Well, it's not so often the ether anymore. Yeah. It, it's connected to something. That's what I didn't like is when it was all separate. And it, was, it was like you were watching two different shows. Sure. Night and day. And so now you put it together to hope. It's back and forth. Pick a side, darn it. Right. You know, and I really like John Carl Esposito. I can't emphasize that enough. I really like him as an actor. But you got to give him some better stuff here. You're wasting him. I mean, he has good scenes here and there, but you've, you've got to get that story based out a little bit better. So, Betty Lund, that's my challenge for you. Yeah. If you can fix that, you're God. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> or Nanites, if you want to go with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really not a fan of the Neville character. And like yeah. you, it's not because I don't like Giancarlo Esposito. It's just I don't like this character. He's too flip floppy for me. And his whole story has just not interested me from the very beginning. So at least this week it was a little bit better because it is connected. Like you said, it's not just off on its own. Now, also for the last few weeks, Dan, we've been hoping to get more information on the Aaron story arc. And this week we got a whole bunch. Yeah, it was good. We found that the third member of the Trinity that is the creators of the Nanites, Peter has taken the powers the nanites have granted him and become a faith healer who didn't understand that his god was actually a bunch of tiny robots. This turned to a bunch of talk about religion and faith with Peter, once a very practical scientific mind, now a Bible-thumping religious nutjob praying to fireflies. But it's still unclear whether he actually saw them or not, so I'm not sure. Now, if Revolution wanted to add some teeth to this scenario, then they should have dialed up the crazy on Peter. Instead, he was a level-headed and lucid as anyone's been in the show. Now, there's an interesting idea in comparing religion and the nanotech, but so far, I don't think Revolution has found it just yet. Right. Dan, what are your thoughts on the Aaron story arc this week? Are you interested in a comparison of religion and the nanites, or do you hope it goes another way? Kripke has done comparisons between 
religion and the stories he tries to tell come really well in the past. Do you remember the Don't Fear the Reaper episode of Supernatural? I think so. Where where Dean got healed by going from one of those, what do you, what do you call them? Healing chap, not healing chapel, but the, you know, the minister in the commercial. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. A faith healer that, yeah, I, I remember that. But I don't remember what, what the healer's power was. He, he could, basically it was, he could heal people if that were going to die. I remember Dean got electrocuted. And they thought his his organs were to fail. Right. So Sam brought him to a faith healer. And then when he was healed, it sent a reaper after somebody else. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know that episode? Yep. They handled it very well in that one. And so I'm thinking that, give it some time, I think Revolution is going to do the same with this problem. Okay. I just don't think they got all the time this week because they stuffed so much information into it. And I like that Peter is not a nut job. So we can look at it at more of a non-biased standpoint. Because we've seen their religious nut job before. Okay. That's a standard stereotype. So making Peter on the fence, I think, makes it more interesting. Okay. See, I thought that making him a nut job would have ramped it up a little bit and made it more action-y, maybe more action-packed. I think you're going to run into a character like that. I just don't know if it's Peter. Okay. So maybe it's going to be one of his followers that is so right. devoted to him that he becomes sort of the right-wing nut job, sort of. Because he almost seems afraid to tell the truth to yeah. the people. Yep. So Absolutely. maybe it's because he's scared of somebody. Okay. Again, I don't know if they're that smart on Revolution. Yet. Yeah, and just when you thought Revolution would make it through an episode without someone getting captured, the hour ended back yeah. in New Vegas with a, with a kidnapping. A big diamond heist to get payment for mercenaries went sour, and Connor and Monroe were captured by New Vegas authorities. There's your cliffhanger, and we'll have to wait until the end of February to find out what happens. Based on the 500 times that this has happened before in this series, I'll take a stab at it and say that they get rescued. Maybe by Charlie and probably Monroe, Neville, Jason, and Rachel. What do you think, Dan? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Not exactly going to be new ground they're covering here, but <laughs> I just had to I had to laugh because I wish that the cliffhanger should have been something with the nanites. Yeah, this is so classic old revolution where somebody gets nabbed and they have to go and save them the next week. Uh I thought we had another episode this week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it? I mean, I don't know, because, like, my schedule of... says we have another one, but NBC said that it's off until wow. after the, the Olympics, so I don't know who to believe. <laughs> well, you can't believe NBC at the time. Yeah. And they said this was the episode you don't want to miss. Right. It was good. But it wasn't that. No. Like I said last week. But it week, lived up to it much better than I thought it would. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. And that's what I think partly because you and I talked last week and we said, don't get super hyped about it. Don't think this is going to be the best episode of the series and you won't be disappointed. And since I didn't go into it thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the best episode or they said this is going to be a good episode. I just went in thinking, okay, we're going to watch Revolution this week. And I wasn't disappointed because I wasn't expecting too much. And I think that helped with my enjoyment of this week's episode. Okay, there was enough to make me want to come back. My curiosity with the Nanites. Yeah. Well, coming back. As we mentioned at the top of this discussion, visually, this might have been the best episode of the series. That with, is correct. With the, the way that the director shot it, the way that he used three or four different genre styles, depending on where the story was going, to make the visuals match the storytelling. That was excellent, and, and that was definitely one of the better things we've ever seen on this series. The actual story probably didn't live up to that. 
Yeah. But that was okay because we weren't expecting it to be a masterpiece and we weren't disappointed. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Can I think that pretty much sums it up there, Nico? Yeah. It's a good job with the section there. Okay, now we're going to move on to talking about How I Met Your Mother with the episode How Your Mother Met Me. Recalling what has been going on with Ted's future wife over the past eight years before Robin and Barney's wedding weekend. Awful summary there. Awful. Awful. But after having 200 episodes to get us really behind Ted meeting the future mother raised children, I have to commend the writers of this show for getting us really behind the mother meeting Ted in just 30 minutes. Sure, we've seen Kristen Milani as the mother here and there throughout the season, showing us how well she gets along with Ted's friends. But beyond that, our understanding of why she is the perfect woman for Ted, or why she needs him, has been left in mystery until now. Of course, before we got into all of that, we got the must-needed explanation to Ted's near misses with meeting the mother. From her own perspective, while using the premise to reference the naked man, Ted walking into the wrong classroom on his first day as a professor, the yellow umbrella, the Arcadia story arc of Judy Slavin, Ted showing up in the Clarence, got a dress, got all the other past moments that make milestone episodes like these so much fun. However, my favorite part of the episode was the reminder that How I Met Your Mother is a show that can have a lot of fun, like when you're hanging out with friends, but can also speak to us emotionally through the mother's story taking us to present day, where she turned down her boyfriend's proposal, believing her only shot at love was the man she saw as her soulmate who had passed away. Naturally, since the mother's boyfriend could stay in Farhampton, she ends up at the same inn as Barney's wedding, feeling alone where she plays a song of the ukulele given to her by her lost love. And who is enamored by the song on the balcony next door? None other than our man Ted Mosby. Meaning the search for the mystery singer is on, after he finds Barney. In some respects, Ted searching for the love of his life, just based on hearing her voice, is cliche, in a dorky Disney fairy tale kind of way. Like Cinderella trying on a glass slip. But have you met Ted? Because this fits his character perfectly. Ted sets things up for the epic ending to Ted's love story that Robert predicted when he was about to marry Stella so many years ago. So I guess that means this episode did its job. Because I am more hyped up to see how Ted answers that question of how I met your mother, more so than ever before. Even though it comes with a bittersweet realization that it's going to be all over. So Nico, since we've got a little bit more time for the majority of our Monday night shows not being on this week, I wanted to ask you a few more questions about this Milestone 200th episode. Rather than the usual, what did you think of this week's How I Met Your Mother? So first off, Nico, what did you think of the throwbacks to past episodes? This was easily the best part of the episode, in my opinion. I loved seeing all the near misses from the mother's perspective and was exactly what I said they needed to do when they did finally meet her. So I'm glad that we got that this week. Really, this was brilliantly done, and the past few weeks have been so good that I'm finally remembering why we fell in love with this show in the first place, because it has been so good lately. Right. Now, did you think all these moments were worthy of the 200th episode? Was there anything you kind of felt they left out? You know, I did, but maybe I missed this one, but I thought she was supposedly at the party on the rooftop where Ted met the slutty pumpkin. And I did not see that reference in the episode this week. Maybe it was and I missed it, but that would be the one thing that was missing. But really, everything that they showed was absolutely needed in this 200th episode. Right. So maybe it was just a time issue. Well, they explained the umbrella. They covered some of the retcons. Yep. Fixed the retcons. And yeah, I, I thought the key ones that you could remember off the top of your head, they covered. Yep. And that's what's important. Yeah, absolutely. Got the slutty pumpkin, you know, I think you might be right, but that joke had run its course. <laughs> right. So, because it, it wasn't it the one last season, just wasn't. We were all excited it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't know if they could have, maybe, it just they weren't able to get everybody back, 
they weren't able to get Katie Holmes to come back for another episode. So I just don't know. Yeah, right, exactly. But um, beyond that, yeah, I think they covered it really well. Kind of, I mean, did you think all that the near misses matched up? Yeah, Dan, as I said, this was the best part of the episode because it was done so masterfully. Really brilliant work getting all the major plot points and important near misses to line up. I thought it was great. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I feel like when they wrote the, the episodes where they had, they had the alternate perspective set up in their heads. Yeah, I think you're right. So they probably wrote down a note or whatever to remind them, and then they went back to those notes, put this episode together. So I, I mean, I think even when they had the first near, near miss, they said, okay, one day we're going to do an episode where we explain all this yep. and see the other side. So great way to come through, and I think this was an episode... 200, 200 episodes of the making, I guess. You know, they had all the weight of those episodes to really make this a great story. Now, Nico, what did you think about the mother's backstory revealed in this episode with the death of her first soulmate and then turning down her boyfriend's marriage proposal because of that? Did you feel that like these were key factors in making the moment where Ted met the mother worthy of 200 episodes? Or did the scene where Ted heard the mother play the ukulele Mrs. Mark for you? You know, Dan, many people have thought that Ted and Robin were meant to be together, and even Ted himself felt that Robin was his soulmate. The idea that the mother too had loved and lost and was now finally ready to move on from her first love at the same time that Ted is having to move on from Robin so that she and Barney could be happy together makes their timing and story the perfect fairy tale like true love story that Ted expects and wants in his life. And what the show was hyped to be. Yeah, I thought it was perfect. Yeah. And the whole hear, hearing the music and essentially falling in love even before first sight was, again, just right for a guy who believes in the one. So I think it was perfect. Best episode probably in the second hundred was this 200th episode. Oh, yes, I agree. Got it did everything we wanted for a 200 episode. Really lived up to the hype for it. Yeah, that was because it lived up to everything we were expecting from this episode from the mother's perspective, which I even suggested that the entire ninth season could be told that way i'm glad that they didn't go that way and they ended up going with just this single episode but i really thought that this was handled very well yes yes i mean really for the show to work this ninth season has to work i think it's gone so far so good all the key episodes have had its mark in this I think this will be remembered as a, a great sitcom down the line. Yeah, I think it will. I think it's going to be up there in the same pantheon as Friends, Cheers, Frasier, some of those yeah. that are considered the best ever. This has got that, based on how it wraps up, we'll have the opportunity to be lumped in with those great shows. Well, I, almost the idea of it essentially telling a story backwards is what really makes it unique and it really paid it off really well. Yeah, I, I've thought so. Alright, so with that, we're going to go into a, another show. Yeah, we're going to talk about community this week with the episode Analysis of Cork-Based Networking. Annie and Professor Hickey prepare for the midterm term that must navigate power struggles within the custodial IT and parking staff. What a wonderfully random episode. <laughs> this was a bit of what yes. are they smoking in the writer's room week on community, but in all the right ways. And it was certainly consistently funny as we followed Annie and Hickey on their guest star pack journey through Greendale. Sometimes when I'm watching community, I'm not entirely sure I can follow all the pop culture references. Pop, pop. I mean, Pop culture is moving at a speed that I can't keep up with, and I don't think anybody can. So there was bound to come a time when community spoofed parody paid homage to something that's totally over my head. And I think analysis of corkboard networking was it. 
because I couldn't understand WTF was going on for about half of it. I tried to connect the dots, but I came up empty. Why? Because analysis of corkboard networking was just randomness. Wonderfully community randomness, but randomness nonetheless. While Nathan Fillon was the hyped-up guest star this week, he was only one of many, as Annie and Hickey spoke to Kumal Nanjani, Paget Brewster, Robert Patrick, and the returning Jerry Miner, all playing folks who work at Greendale, and thus could return again, hopefully some of these we want to see again. There was a bit of a, hey, look who we got aspect to seeing so many guest stars packed into this episode, but it was still fun and most likely speaks to how much people like community, especially within the TV industry, yeah. and were happy to just pop over to the set to film a scene or two, with everyone given at least one standout moment. Fillion's so frustrated at not being able to see his porn was great, especially his disappointed face at the end. Great Nathan Fillion. As for yeah. my favorite comedic moments, definitely the bloodlines of conquest as the Game of Thrones spoof was great. Yes. And I'm glad they didn't use any real spoilers from Game of Thrones because I know how pissed some people would have been. Well, I think that's what they were making fun of, so they were uh, yeah, absolutely. very careful. Nathan's desire for porn, as I mentioned, was great. Abed's romance with the deaf girl and Britta's use of that <laughs> to spoil the bloodlines of conquest was a great bit That was as well. so cruel. Yeah, I'm also glad Brie Larson returned as Kochek girl and we'll see if that goes anywhere this year as she was last season's Abed girl and the deaf girl seemed to be this season's Abed girl. But I'm glad that Brie Larson made that return. I think there's something good that could come out of that. Yeah. Dan, what were your favorite comedic moments? And did you find an overall theme or spoof or parody this week to this week's episode that I just couldn't make the connection to? Or was it just randomness for you as well? It was so random, it just made me laugh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here, so I'm just going to laugh. I love the bear down dance. <laughs> That that just cracked me up. And then how, well, it was something Che came up with it because a bunch of kids got murdered by a bear. And he goes, okay, we'll make it fat dog. <laughs> that is the randomness of that song, but it's hilarious. It, just, it was. The only thing was, Nathan Fillon, yes, it was funny. But they hyped it the week before with Chang. Say that Nathan Fillon was his, was it, male celebrity crush or something? Yeah, same-sex uh, same, celebrity. Yeah, and they didn't have a scene together. That's the only thing that disappointed me. They, I mean, if, if you're going to hype something like that, then have them interact. But is Nathan going to pop up again? I hope so. This was too short of a appearance. I think he needed to be more of a focus of the episode. That would have been more fun. Because that's what I thought was going to happen, to counteract the bed theory, which I don't know. Did that top it? Uh, the yeah. guest stars? Okay. But I, I thought this was a great album to continue to get that. But. So with that, let's talk now about, I guess, the big celebrity cameos that we had on the Manager Network at the same time. So what was that, Nico? Yeah, we're going to talk about the Big Bang Theory with the episode, The Convention Conundrum. All started with the Big Bang. Hey! Unable to score tickets for Comic-Con, Sheldon decides to stage his own comic book convention, while the ladies attempt to act like grown-ups. I felt the guy's pain this week. The spark of this week's oh, conflict yes. was something most comic book lovers have had to contend with in recent years, the dreaded registration process for San Diego Comic-Con. Poor Andy. As, as ridiculous as it might have looked to see the four guys huddled around their laptops and shouting, refresh, 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 for hours, that's pretty much dead on. San Diego Comic-Con requires a hell of a lot of effort and a fair amount of luck to score tickets to these days and is nearly impossible if you have not previously attended and are not able to pre-order. Last year, the tickets sold out in 90 seconds. Well, technically, the queue filled up in 90 seconds, and I was shut out of buying tickets. Luckily, I'm also a uh, San Diego Comic-Con 
volunteer so I can get tickets that way. But I know these guys paint. It's it's impossible for, yeah. for people who have not gone. Luckily, Andy's gone for quite a few years, so he can pre-register and usually gets tickets that way. As for my favorite comedic moment, it would have to be Darth Vader himself, James Earl Jones, and how much fun he yeah. had with Sheldon this week. I absolutely loved his guest appearance, and also Carrie Fisher's cameo as they ding-dong ditched her was, was pretty great as well. Yes. In a season packed with more than its fair share of guest stars, this was easily the most impressive accomplishment for the Big Bang crew. I also liked that he was not another in a line of guest stars to get a restraining order against Sheldon, and rather it turned out that James Earl Jones liked Star Wars as much as anyone. I also enjoyed Sheldon's exchange with Robert Downey Jr.'s agent, which was definitely amusing. I sat through Iron Man 2. I believe he owes me two hours of his time. And I liked that his board of possible guest panelists included anyone who played Uncle Ben and anyone who shot <laughs> Uncle Ben. I know I mentioned a bunch of I didn't of them, catch that, but that's hilarious. Yeah, you gotta free, freeze frame that and go back and look at it. There's some good stuff on that board. I know I mentioned a bunch of them, Dan, but what were your favorite comedic moments from this week's Big Bang Theory? Three words, James Earl Jones. The, yes. the guy looked like he was having a blast. Oh, yeah. The entire episode. And I don't even think that was acted. <laughs> I mean, it just, oh, my gosh. The karaoke scene. I, I just, like, they got James Earl Jones on stuff. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. I'll do this. <laughs> Let's do this. You and want I, me to do what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm down. <laughs> I mean, he did, and, and just, oh, kind of the whole thing where you think he's going to choose Sheldon out for asking him about Star Wars, and then he's like, I love Star Wars, because I, I pretty much cheered that he did yep, that. Yep, yep, absolutely. I was just like, this is great, and okay, Carrie Fisher, kind of the fact that they make that joke out of uh, Carrie Wood says she's a crazy person, Yep, that was, that was very, very good. And really, hats off to Carrie Fisher for being a good sport about it. Yeah. Just playing along with it. it, it just, it's, just, it's not funny, James! <laughs> then why am I laughing? <laughs> Good stuff. And I hope this encourages more celebrities to go on Big Bang Theory and have fun like this. Because it, it really was just a great thing. And it, I really like James Earl Jones, but this just put another um, notch on his scorecard. Oh, absolutely. He just, it, it's a lot of fun that he did this. I really have given him props for going on doing this. Really having a good time. So um, kudos to you, James Earl Jones. I think he made my week of television with his guest spot. Yeah, it was probably the best guest spot. Definitely on this show, the best of the season. Yeah. Maybe best of the series. I agree. Um, I mean, Bill Nye's w- was fun. So was Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart, who's coming back for a third episode as Professor Proton. A lot of good stuff, but James Earl Jones just nailed it. So I think it possibly could have been the best of the series. Can't wait to see LeVar Burton again. Yeah, yeah, we saw him on Community, so why not again on Big Bang? Yes, that Ken Will Wheaton is always a classic. Yeah. Can't forget him. Alright, with that, I think it's about time we jump into the Airwaves Rundown section. Sci-Fi's home from Mondays, FX, and USA. Characters welcome. EMT, we know drama. We're going to jump off with Justified in the episode Over the Mountain. See them Raylan searches for a missing informant. Meanwhile, Boyd's life is threatened by a relative. Well, that was a front-to-back fantastic episode of Justified. The hour didn't once drag, and after three episodes of prep, every story was in a position to stand up on its own. Things began, as they probably always should, with Dewey Crow being a damn idiot. I was skeptical of a Dewey-focused season at the start, but it's paying off well. Dewey constantly fumbling missions, not quite realizing he's the one in power, and being strong-armed into doing things that he shouldn't by Cousin Darrow is a potent recipe for disaster. 
But Graham Yost and company know what they're doing and are doing it well. Following Daryl's suggestion that Dewey kill Wade for skimming whorehouse profits, Dewey made up some lie about his buried treasure, and Wade, no rocket scientist himself, believed it. It takes a special kind of board-certified imbecile to be duped by Dewey, and Wade is that imbecile. Wade had just had the snot beaten out of him for stealing from Dewey the episode before, and then he goes out in the woods alone with the guy? Seriously, how dumb is he? Of course, Dewey was forced into killing Wade Messer, and it went about as well as you could expect. Dewey bumbled it and shot Messer, not fatally, mind you. They fought, and Dewey nearly killed himself, and then Dewey fell down a damn hill. Ultimately, Dewey got lucky when Messer died from bleeding out just before being found. Even though Justify is loaded with the kind of dialogue that elevates the collective intelligence of its characters to beyond genius levels, this is a show that loves its morons and their natural selection-proving behavior as well. Of course, in Dewey's hands, the simple matter of murdering Wade became a comedy of errors involving miniature shovels and that amazing prayer to God to help him murder Wade. But by golly, he got the job done. Well, most of it at least. The whole body disposal part never happened thanks to some good Samaritans out on a hunting trip, and it was Raylan who stumbled onto Wade's corpse in the end. Wade's body put Raylan on the scent of Wade's murderer, which led him to the crows, and that first real confrontation between Daryl and Raylan. Without much else to pin on them, Raylan showed them who they were messing with by taking Derek, the underage crow brother, into protective custody under the pretext that a teen probably shouldn't be tending bar at a whorehouse. It was the first step in this delicate dance between lawman and outlaw, and as graceful as Raylan's first bit of footwork was, we all know Daryl will come back by stomping on Raylan's toes. As for Boyd, he isn't playing nice with his cousin Johnny anymore, as their falling out has escalated into a full-blown rivalry. Johnny denied any involvement in Boyd's heroin troubles, but later on we saw him meeting with Hot Rod Dunham, so I'm assuming he's guilty as charged. And this brings up the potential for an awesome war that's long overdue. Boyd versus Hot Rod? Yeah, I can't wait for some of that action. This week's episode kicks season 5 in the butt by letting the hunt for Wade be the episode open and close case, rather than bringing in a new baddie for Raylan to chase and probably ultimately shoot. This is justified after all. The momentum from the search added some juice to the rest of the ongoing stories, making this the most serialized and one of the best episodes of this young season. Now we have Raylan vs. Daryl and Boyd vs. Hot Rod, and everything in between. Things are really getting excited in this fifth season of Justified. All right, another great episode of Justified. Just when do I not think it's a great episode of Justified? I was going to say, is, yeah. This is one of the best shows on television. And you you can hear it every week in my reviews that how much I love this show. Now we're going to jump into another episode. This time it is actually the episode that I said is going to happen. Last okay. week it ended up being a different episode because they told me it was going to be one thing and they ended up showing a different episode and oh, keeping that episode for a later showing but this week it is indeed the fourth episode homecoming in an effort to impress a woman derek mistakenly promises to bring her son's father home from war pete and joe leave the platoon for the flag football game against the marines 
Unfortunately, more episode shenanigans. Homecoming was meant to be the 10th episode and to air in the fall when Fox would have a slate of NFL games two days later. Once the series was bumped to January, Fox moved it up in the order so that Pam Oliver's cameo and the other football jokes would run right before the Super Bowl. This all seems to be a lot more trouble than it's worth. As a result, we get dropped in the middle of Derek's relationship with Aaron, the single mom waitress, and we'll have to see the start of that relationship in a later episode. Just more Fox screwing with the series for stupid reasons. The comedy this week was a lot stronger overall as well, from the very first scene involving those tear-jerking soldier surprise reunion videos to the ridiculous football practice scenes to Jeff Stalt's fearless commitment to that halter top. The punchline rate of fire this week was the highest thus far, and nearly all the jokes landed center mass. Randy was once again my favorite character of the week, although Jeff Stoltz, Pete, and the other brother, Derek, were pretty solid this week as well. Another good episode of Enlisted this week. I just wish Fox wouldn't screw with the episode orders, because it's starting to affect the story. And not gonna lie, the Soldier Reunion films do make me tear up a little bit too, so I understood what they were talking about. That's some good coffee. All right, with that, it's time to talk about our last show of the week, and that is Star's new pirate show, Black Sails, with the episode two. Matey. While Flint discovers a thief amongst this crew, Eleanor must make a difficult decision. Good job, heights with Max. Good sight of Ruffle. Fruit, fruit, tits, tits. Once again, the boobies were out in the first 30 seconds of the episode, but overall, it was only mildly distracting from the overall story. As you might expect, most pilots usually cost more than the average series episode, as they often contain a bit more action and a larger production scale than the chapters that follow all part of the series wanting to suck people in right away and give them big moments to talk about. Then by the second episode, and this especially pertains to some period dramas such as Downton Abbey and many others, things start to mellow out a bit in the later episodes. No, 2 wasn't flat or uninteresting by any means, but its lack of oomph compared to last week's premiere was definitely evident. It also now becomes clear why a lot of people see this series as the pirate version of HBO's Deadwood, as this chapter was very much about pirate prosperity prosperity, commerce, future prospects, and scores, dastardly deals and double talk in place of raiding and pillaging, and at the heart of it, Flint, a man who, going against the grain, thinks big picture, thinks of a world after his pirating days are over, and he realizes that his dream of an autonomous nation of thieves who are able to operate out of the reach of the Royal Navy requires a huge payday, and this is the one reason over all else why he desperately wants to find that Spanish treasure, so that he and others of his kind can stand in equal footing with those who would normally try to rule over them. So this week's installment became a twisting race for the missing schedule page, and I really liked how Flint, Gates, and Billy Bones were able to figure out right away that John Silver was to blame for their current predicament so that the episode could then focus on the page enough to put an end to it altogether as the MacGuffin. And by the end, with the walls closing in, Silver was resourceful enough to memorize the writing and burn the damn thing so that whichever side caught him would have to spare his life. 
pretty much everyone involved in this episode was desperate, which made things a lot more suspenseful. Honestly, I did miss the violence and clamor of the premiere, but on the flip side, I found myself invested in everyone's foolhardy plans. It was just that, at times, the constant moving of pieces on the board was a lot to expect from us, attention-wise, in the second episode when we're still struggling to remember each character's name. For example, I'm not exactly sure who the woman was at the end, but she was important enough to Flint for him to leave his partying pirates behind, disguise himself, and ride off into the night. He's obviously a man with many secrets and loftier notions than his other pirate brethren, and now it looks like he could be keeping some sort of domestic home from them as well. Also, Captain Vane's ragtag team of pirates, including Anne Bonnie and Nassau hipster Calico Jack Rackman, provided a pretty feisty opposition to Flint's sort of Hail Mary schemes going on. In fact, at this point, they're kind of the most interesting pirates of the bunch. All in all, this week's episode really tied Flint's plan into everyone's future and the promise of a self-run pirate paradise. And funnily enough, because we're now invested in this future, John Silver ultimately became more of a pain in the ass this week than even usual. This was a getting business done sort of episode, free from most cliches of TV and movie pirates. It wasn't as thrilling as the opening episode, but the quest for the page wound up drawing lines in the sand and creating new allegiances that will be worth watching going forward. Another solid episode and probably enough to really draw most viewers in. Alright, with that, we would normally jump into the voicemail section, but we played Wu's voicemail in the How I Met Your Mother section, yes. and there wasn't another one. But if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we look forward to hearing from you guys with your thoughts on anything we talk about or any shows that we should be covering. So just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us the voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback or maybe even a little couple minute review on one of the shows nice. that you love. We hope to hear from some of you soon. Yes, definitely. We love to hear your thoughts, especially as this kind of final week of television picks up because we might be off for a little bit while for the Olympics. So with that, are you ready to wrap things up this week, Nico? I am. Tell everyone what's coming down the pipe. On next week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on what we believe will be on, and that is Castle, yes. Intelligence, The Following with Andy, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and Psych, plus our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, Community, two episodes of New Girl, including the post-Super Bowl episode with Prince, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Justified, Elementary, Enlisted, and Black Sales, along with a discussion on the best and maybe some of the worst Super Bowl commercials, and maybe even a few more things that we forgot. Yeah. But for, for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. For sure. And until our next podcast, you can check out our spinoff podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, and that is a podcast hosted by Michael and Wu, and it covers a variety of topics in the entertainment industry. Basically, they just pick a topic they want to talk about and basically focus on that for an entire episode. So if you want a story, a more focused podcast on one thing, check out It's Tangent Time. Also coming back now since Michael has returned safe, safe and sound from his trip to Israel is the Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which covers all the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans. Most notably, the Forever Evil story arc that's going on now in DC Comics, as well as Smallville Season 11 comics, and coming soon, Beware the Batman, when that show supposedly comes back on in January, if that works out. So for anything DC-related, check out the DC Nation podcast. 
Also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy Babak, and that covers individual episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So if you're a fan of that show and want more detailed reviews on that particular show, check out the Helicarrier podcast, hosted by Andy, and actually myself for the time being. And also, coming back from hiatus, because ATA Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to focusing on individual episodes of the hit CW TV series, Arrow. So if you like that show, check out Michael and Wu's coverage on it that airs on a weekly basis. Got their next episode is going to be cover, covering the mid-season premiere, as well as the episode following that. So they're going to double up this week due to Michael's trips to Israel. Also, if you'd like, you could contact our podcast in a variety of ways by visiting our new and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. And also, you can like us on Facebook. Get through liking us on Facebook. You can stay updated on all of our podcast episode releases. Can follow all the movie and TV news that Nico and our other podcast members come report on come during the week. Can for that same content, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the there. It's just Across the Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like to share your favorite moments for many of the shows we cover, or want to share your opinions on them, or want to suggest another show that we should be covering, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. We also have a YouTube channel featuring all sorts of previews for upcoming movies, including Captain America the Winter Soldier, X-Men Days of Future Past, RoboCop, got a whole lot more. So check out our YouTube channel for previews for upcoming films, especially the big ones coming out this summer. God, look for a Guardians of the Galaxy trailer on our YouTube channel when that finally is released, and I'm anxious to see a trailer for that film, because it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast, for all the ways you could contact us, you could download our Podcast Box app, which will let you listen to our podcast on an iPad or iPhone. And you can also stay in contact with our podcast through that app as well. And if you are on an Android or Windows device, you can download our Android app, which is available through the Amazon Marketplace. Also, ATA is an affiliate of the iTunes Store. So if you click any of the buttons located on our website that says Download on iTunes, if you click that, all of the purchases you make within the iTunes store over the next three days will go towards helping supporting ATA. So if you want to purchase something by iTunes, we ask you if you could go through that route so it will help out ATA to keep our podcast on the air. So with that, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstack. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. James Old Jones, thanks for a great episode of the Good See you, guys. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.